Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Good Kush podcast. I'm Kush, and in today's episode, I'll be discussing the wonderful world of cricket with two armchair analysts who only know too well the pain of being Pakistan cricket fans. Joining me from just over the water in lovely Ireland is Hassan, a PhD researcher in international relations with a penchant for politics, pace, and Pollock. And I'm not talking about the fish. And alongside him, joining us from London is Mohsin, a self-professed Imran Khan fanboy who is no stranger to heartbreak as an Arsenal fan who works within government policy matters. Guys, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's start with how you both got into cricket. And I think being South Asian, being Pakistani, people feel that it's only natural that we'll end up supporting cricket or following it no matter what we do. Um, I think it's a very generalized view that people have of us as as sports fans. So I'll start with you, Mohsen. How did you get into cricket and which teams do you support? Thanks a lot, Kush. Um, yeah, so it's actually a bit of a weird one with me. Um, so my journey goes back to the 99 World Cup, which we obviously hosted here back in England. I'm not going to say all the way back in 99 because I'm trying to still hold on some semblance of youth. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, 99 World Cup, that was when my journey started. However, at the start of that 99 World Cup, I had no interest or no liking of cricket whatsoever. Um, my dad, my uncles absolutely loved cricket and, you know, they were watching pretty much every single game since the start of that tournament. I found it absolutely boring and pointless, to be perfectly honest with you. And I still remember coming back um, on a Saturday afternoon from um, an Urdu language class. We used to go to Urdu class on Saturday mornings for a couple of hours. On the way back, I was saying, and I was young, I was saying, I want to go out. Let's do this. Let's go shopping. Let's just whatever uh, and my dad was just saying no Pakistan and South Africa are playing today so there's no chance that we can go out today and I was absolutely moody uh, and angry and and just ragged about it I just didn't want to watch the cricket I tried sitting through the cricket I think I lasted around about half an hour before I just said you know what um, I'm going home I was at my, my uncle's house and I just went back home um, and just sat there with my mum watching PTV news I actually still remember it randomly um, but then you chose the, PTV News over cricket. It ended up being PTV News. Yeah, exactly. That's how bad wow. it was. However, however, um, as the tournament went along, I fell more and more in love in terms of the game itself, the players, um, the kits as well. The kits were absolutely amazing back in '99, and obviously just watching uh, the Pakistan team and more specifically Wasim Akram running in, bowling, appealing, celebrating. Um, it just, yeah, it just activated something in terms of my love for cricket and um, it's been my first love ever since. What, so even before being a heartbroken Arsenal fan? Arsenal did come before, but I think cricket is always going to be number one in terms of my sporting loves. Um, And (laughs) the the, the irony is, I think it's a case of which has given me more heartbreak, Pakistan cricket or Arsenal football. And it's one heck of a toss-up, to be honest with you. I think I'm a glutton for punishment. (laughs) And on that happy note, uh, you know what? One thing I'll say is that I think a lot of Asian people or Desi people, uh, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, they're introduced to the sport through their parents. 
And I know for me, I remember my earliest memories of cricket are from the Sharjah Cup. And a little bit earlier than that, even, I just have this image of Rana Tunga getting handed the World Cup by Benazir Bhutto. And I just remember seeing it. And of course, I was very young. I think I was only about four or five. And I just remember seeing her just handing it over to him. And it just felt so amazing that our country was a part of something so big. Because prior to that, I mean, prior to that, I was quite young anyway. But even after that, I don't remember seeing Pakistan on a world stage anywhere for anything apart from some really bad political stories that we won't go into in this podcast, but tune in next time. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I I can resonate with your story completely that, you know, in in Thirsty Households anyway, parents will kind of, I don't want to say control, but they'll have the biggest say over what's on TV, what everyone's watching. And in our house, you had two choices. It was either cricket or it was politics. So take your pick. And if you don't like any of them, then God help you. Uh, so we'll move over to Hassan, who I'm sure you've got some very cool stories to tell us about your experience of 90s cricket. So Hassan, how did you get into cricket? Thank you, Kush, for the intro as well. And that kind of dates me already, doesn't it? Mohsen there, his first experience in 99, I'm going to say early 90s and, and mid 90s. So, um, <laughs> but yes, that uh, that 92 World Cup, but even going before that. So I grew up in the Gulf and in Dubai in particular. So I spent like 18 years growing up in Dubai. And that's very close to Sharjah, first of all, coming back to your <laughs> to your Sharjah point. Um, so I've got a couple of stories about that. But for me, again, it was that family influence. Um, and one of my earliest memories regarding cricket then is when you'd have sort of the um, family friends and, you know, your dad would be there and your mom, like they'd all be gathered around the TV. And there was this random series happening between Pakistan and South Africa in South Africa, which Pakistan were out and like down and out in that game. Um, and then suddenly Wakar Yunus comes steaming in, in his pomp and, you know, stumps are flying all over the place and out of nowhere, Pakistan get that game. And, and just that atmosphere where your dad's suddenly going crazy, everyone's going crazy, shouting and whatnot. And, you're seeing sides of your dad that you've never seen before, you know, so it's like, um, it's it's kind of an infectious thing that once you get into that, there's no real coming out of it. Um, so, um, and then you hear all these funny stories as well that I had uh, with the Sharjah Cup is one of them, um, where we had a, a close family friend, um, you know, like in South Asian culture, we call them uncles. Um, mm-hmm. So there was an uncle, Halim, and my dad tells me the story that they went to the Sharjah Stadium sometime in the 90s as a Pakistan-India game. And Pakistan ended up winning and everyone celebrating. And my dad looks to the left or to his right to find Uncle Halim to hug him or, or something. And he's not there. He's like, he was here a minute ago. What happened? And they look up and he's actually climbed the pillar up onto the roof of the stadium. What? <laughs> like, All right, so Uncle Halim's up there now. <laughs> what, just casually yep, like, on just the roof? roof. Just, he, he just climbed up the pillar. Um, so, <laughs> Uncle Halim is a don. He sounds awesome. <laughs> is Uncle Halim still around? We need to get him on the podcast. Unfortunately, <laughs> he's not with us, no. But, but he, he, was, he was an absolute legend. Um, so... 
Um, but yeah, growing up in a South Asian household, you're always going to have the cricket influence. Um, around the 92 World Cup, um, you know, Mohsen was talking there about kits um, in 99. And 92 was when they actually went into colored kits, didn't they? And in those days, they had every team would be wearing the same uniform, but they'd just be different colors, which as a six or seven year old kid was was fantastic. Somehow it was just it was great. Um, and I had this little shirt, which was the same purple kind of dark blue color that India had at the time. And so me and my dad would basically have this. Would be, I was small enough to play cricket inside the house in the living room. And my dad would be bowling at me. I'd make sure I missed the ball and get bowled out. And then I'd kind of bow my head down and put the bat under the arm and walk off like an embarrassed Indian batsman. You know, like so. Wow. So, so we, we had that kind of thing going on. So it was a big influence in our house from, from the very start. And yeah, I've never looked back since then. So just drawing upon your experiences, um, like I've mentioned before, we're all Pakistani and we were born and raised outside of Pakistan. So how would you guys rate your experiences as a Pakistani fan living outside Pakistan and maybe in a country where they do actually play cricket and they do have their own team and naturally there might be an expectation to support them or just in general your experiences with with fans from other countries when you tell them that you're a cricket fan? Yes, obviously, um, I was born in England and um, England have a pretty awesome cricket team themselves. Once I got into cricket after the 99 World Cup, I still remember watching cricket on Channel 4, watching, I think it was England versus New Zealand um, and then England versus the West Indies in 2000. Unfortunately, England were absolutely trash. I think they were the worst team in the world. They kept losing pretty much every single match, but they had some pretty awesome players. I mean, I still remember um, Alex Stewart, Marcel saying Graham Thorpe, uh, Dean Hadley, um, Andrew Caddick, Darren Goff. I mean, some really, really amazing players, but as a team, they're absolutely trash. Um, and obviously, having been born here, I've always supported England in football since the Euro 2000. And I've always had that link and supported England from a cricketing point of view whenever they've played anyone apart from Pakistan. Um, and I see that as a natural thing, to be honest with you. Obviously, having grown up here, watched England cricket, um, I've got no links to Australia, South Africa, India, Sri Lanka, whatever other team you want to name. So I think it's a pretty natural thing to be able to actually support both your country of heritage in Pakistan and the country of birth in England. Um, and when I speak to people about that, they don't seem to um, think of it as, as much of a surprise as it potentially could be. Um, so, yeah, it's nice actually having two teams to be able to, to support and having two teams actually have links to um, because as was shown in 2019 if your first team doesn't do well at least you can support your second team and see it win the world cup which is pretty awesome so are you basically saying that england is your team b then your plan b oh, not yeah. really england, <laughs> i love england, how you just admitted no, that. no 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 england is my plan a whenever they play anyone else it's only my team b whenever they play pakistan i'm gonna soundbite that little bit by the way no, no, i'm gonna isolate it <laughs> out of context Cut that, cut that, Kay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with you. I think out of the sports that I take an interest in, I think the least amount of resistance I've faced, both as an Asian and as a woman, 
as a supporter has probably been cricket. I've managed to have decent banter with people and they kind of get why I support Pakistan as well, because I explained to them, I say, look, I grew up in a Pakistani household. My first exposure to cricket was Pakistani cricket through my parents. And it just seemed very natural. Um, and I, and I say this to other people as well, when they say, oh, but you should support England only because you grew up here, you were born here. And I say, look, I didn't go through years and years of relentless racism and bullying to then not be able to choose who I support. So whether or not anyone likes it, I'm always going to support Pakistan. And I don't know what it is. I don't think I can wholeheartedly support England. And maybe it's because I can't just have a second kind of backup team, as it were. And if I support someone, I have to do it wholeheartedly. So for me, it's just Pakistan or nothing. I don't think there's any right, wrong or right way to support a team in all fairness. So it's it's interesting to see how your experiences differed slightly from mine in terms of feeling comfortable to actually support England as a team as well. One other thing as well, I think it's a lot easier to be able to support England when you've actually seen people like Ardu Rashid or Moinali actually playing for England and getting those chances for the national team because it actually reflects society as a whole. Obviously, in the UK, we've got a really, really mixed society, lots of people in different positions from different cultures and ethnicities and beliefs. So it definitely makes things a lot easier when you actually see some role models that are from your part of the world or heritage-wise, the area which you come from, um, to be able to actually support them as opposed to countries such as New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, even to an extent, when it's literally just you know that one aspect of uh, makeup in terms of the team itself so I think England is quite unique in that sense and that's why it makes things a little bit more easier to be able to support them as it would be those other aforementioned teams. Yeah I'm sure there are many people that can identify with uh, what both of us have been saying most in but let's get Hassan in here for a second because I know that you can offer a really different perspective having not been born and raised in the UK. So you mentioned that you were born and raised in the Gulf. So would I be correct in thinking that your experience has faced slightly, you've not faced as much resistance to your cricketing fan choices? Or was it very much the case that because you also grew up in a diverse environment that there was a difference of opinion or there were criticisms leveled at your support? Yeah, it is really fascinating to actually listen to that conversation between two people who were born in the UK and the different sort of experience that they've had. Um, Growing up in the Gulf or in Dubai, it was completely different as far as cricket is concerned. Now, if we ever do another episode on football and me being a German and uh, Bayern Munich supporter while being in a completely English school, that's a different conversation. But as far as cricket goes, um, no, there were no issues like that. Remember that in that part of the world, everyone kind of does support their own country cricket-wise because um, most of the population are expatriates um, coming over, you know, largely from South Asia, but also from England, Australia, South Africa. So it's kind of expected that you would support your own team and also the UAE is not a particularly big cricketing nation in and of itself. It is an associate nation, of course, but it's not the number one sport in the country. Um, so it was a very different experience for me, and especially living in Dubai, where Sharjah is like, 
you know, they're two different cities in many ways, actually, but it's just 20 minutes down the road from Dubai. It, it is that close. They're, they're that close together. So growing up, having the Sharjah tournaments right next door to you, getting sort of season tickets every year, I remember that excitement, finding out which three or four teams are coming to, to Sharjah this year. You know, um, Pakistan would usually be one of them. But, you know, even just, oh, look, Australia come, or New Zealand are coming this year. And it's it was quite exciting. I never got to see a Pakistan-India match, unfortunately. But being able to, to go in and see Pakistan play South Africa, Pakistan playing against um, the West Indies and Sri Lanka, I think these, these were the main matches that I went to. So, and being able to see Wazim Akram, um, Wakar Yunus, Shoy Bakhtar, Siklan Mushtaq, Inzamam, Saeedan, I mean, in the flesh, it was a legendary Pakistan team at that time. Um, so, absolutely, I never had any of that background that you guys were describing. Um, it was very different experience over in Dubai. Yeah. So, moving away from 90s cricket and showing our ages, let's come back into the 21st century. The T20 World Cup that just happened, absolutely heartbreaking for us as Pakistani fans, I know, and for many of the people who are listening. Although I have to admit, there was something that didn't feel quite as heartbroken because realistically, we got through in the most bizarre way possible. And even if we had won, deep down for me personally, it wouldn't have felt like a proper win as if we had won it with hard grit and work and wow speak for yourself <laughs> I, I, I agree with Mohsen <laughs> yeah. because we got hammered by India in the 2017 champions trophy and that you know even if we'd be playing someone else in the final and not India that would have been a huge win for us so yeah speak for yourself absolutely <laughs> I'm just uh, that was a joke guys I was just trying to get them to talk. Uh, no you know what there were some really good performances so let's have a chat about some of the good parts of the Cricket World Cup, T20 Cricket World Cup, I should say. I don't want to offend anybody. So I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this is probably one of the most unified Pakistan teams I've seen in a while. And I feel that this might have to do with their ages slightly. They're quite a lot younger than some of the teams we have seen previously, especially in T20 level. What do you guys think? No doubt about it. No doubt whatsoever, I think. And that's one of the most lovable things about this team. Obviously, you've got their style, you've got their aggression, you've got their fearlessness because they are quite young. But the main thing is the fact that they are so unified um, and the fact that they always fight till the very, very last ball. And that's all you can ask for. I think in the past, because Pakistan teams were pretty much made up with the majority senior players and there was that seniority complex in the sense of I've been around for five, 10 years, so I'm always going to be right. And everyone has to listen to me, regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, has seriously uh, messed up Pakistan cricket in the past. Now you've got players like Babar Azam, Shadab Khan, Mohamed um, Rizwan, uh, Shaheen Afridi, so many young players who are actually coming on board because of their talent. And there's not a semblance of ego within any of them, to be perfectly honest with you. And you can tell that they're trying absolute hardest in terms of trying to win a game for Pakistan, which we saw in the final as well, getting bowled out or, or, or scoring rather 137 odd in your 20 overs. 
you're always going to be, you know, behind it in terms of um, being able to win the game. But we almost did it in the end. And no one that I've spoken to or that I've heard had any issues with losing that final in a way which, in which we lost it because they fought to the very last ball. Um, and that's all you can ask for. So I think there's so many great up and coming things within this team, such as the enthusiasm, such as the unity. And it's always going to put them in good stead going forward. Um, and it seriously would not surprise me if Pakistan do win a major tournament, at least one major tournament within the next four or five years. Yeah, if I could, if I could just follow up on that, actually, I completely agree. And to add to some of the things that have come out of this Pakistan team, the the fielding in that final, I thought was amazing, and I it kind of epitomized how um, how much the team were trying despite having not put the runs on the board. Um, it was a tricky pitch, mind you, as well. But this this attitude I saw coming up um, over the last few years, but in in particular in the last World Cup in the UAE, in the last T20 World Cup um, in the UAE, where they had this kind of um, rally around the flag attitude. Um, and, and you see the Pakistan flag being brought out even to uh, to practice sessions. The first thing they do is kind of pitch the Pakistan flag there into the ground and, and then they start practicing. And, and this sort of um, attitude, I think, has unified the young lads a lot. Um, and it is really quite... Um, quite a pleasant thing to see. And I know there are a lot of critics of Babur Azam's captaincy and perhaps some of his decisions and some of his, um, let's say, batting strike rates uh, at the top of the order. But I think what he brings to this team in terms of unifying everyone perhaps surpasses even, even when he is not informed. So that leads me on really well to my next question, which is, how on earth did they bring about such a big change in behavior for the team? Because most, like you mentioned, this behavior, uh, the seniority complex has pretty much been ingrained into the team since I can remember. I just remember there was so much infighting of who should be in the team, who shouldn't. It always ended up being the senior players, even though they weren't performing, but it was just kind of, I don't know if it was, I wouldn't even call it a respect thing. It was just really, really odd that other teams, like if you compare India, for example, and the teams that they've had in the past 10 years, you can see so many changes. And that doesn't necessarily mean instability. It just means that they're able to see talent for what it is. It's not disrespecting older players. So what do you guys think actually brought about this change in behavior and how they approach selection? Yes, I think it goes back to what I pretty much said um, before. Um, The fact that we've been so fortunate in having so many young players come to the fore pretty much at the same time. Um, Obviously, they've brought with their youth um, passion and exuberance in terms of actually just playing for Pakistan and not caring about any sort of seniority um, levels. Um, So I think that's made things easier. However, I think the one thing we can potentially bring it down to is the creation of the PSL, because obviously after the Pakistan Super League was created, you found people like Fakhr, you found people like um, Ralph uh, Barbarazam obviously came to the fore a little bit more, Shadab Khan did his thing for Islamabad United, etc, etc. So that's definitely helped in ensuring that we've got a much bigger crop of younger players coming through the system, show- showcasing their talent, playing with international uh, talent as well. 
to be able to actually come to the fore and actually get that call up to the national side. Whereas before the PSL, back in the day, it was mostly a case of you've got this many senior players who obviously have done their thing for the past 5, 10, even 15 years and they're undroppable. You can't drop them because there's no one else in that domestic um, pool. And that domestic pool, by the way, was like, you know, flat pitches over five days in the Guardian Trophy or some random unknown trophy where one man and half a dog watches the games um, to be able to, to be able to bring that player into the national side itself. So, yeah, I think that's probably the main reason. Um, and obviously you do unfortunately still have a little bit of that seniority complex within some of the more older players. I'm not going to name any names, but there were some tweets posted out throughout the World Cup, um, some tweets about friendship, some responses about too much truth or star G from the usual incredibly toxic individuals. But thankfully, they aren't particularly close to the first level. They aren't particularly close to coming through to the squad itself. So I think if we can continue along the route that we've started and ensure that we're giving backing to those youngsters and not bringing back those seniors for the next couple of years, then hopefully that's going to be something that's going to be properly ingrained within the Pakistan team to actually be able to continue going forward for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 odd years. I think that PSL point that Mohsen made, I was, that was taking the words like right out of my head, like exactly what I was thinking. Um, it's the level of professionalization that that brought to the game in Pakistan, I think. Um, not just like because of foreign coaches or foreign players, but just the whole setup. Um, an example of that is how the Pakistan team has moved towards using Crickviz, um, which is like um, cricket stats, and they do percentages and matchups of which player should be bowling to who, or if there's a right-hander um, batting or there's a left-hander batting, who should come in, and they take aboard the stats provided by Crickviz, and, and that kind of professionalization really did start in the PSL. And it's kind of gone through the next generation there of, of both coaches in Pakistan and also um, the players. And I think the domestic structure too, there has been a revamp and uh, Mohsen mentioned the Kaidi Azam trophy where you had like Habib Bank playing Pakistan International Airlines and, and that kind of um, matchup going on. Um, and so they've changed that now to the regions or in the case of PSL, the cities. So matches do actually mean something when Sindh is playing against Punjab, for example, as opposed as opposed to um, Habib Bank Limited. So nothing against the bank. I'm sure they're a great bank, but just within cricket, there's probably more interest in, in, um, in regions. So I think that level of professionalization, the PCB um, media team as well, have improved in leaps and bounds in, in the way they've been covering the domestic games. And so I think all of these little bits of professionalization have come through to the team as well and how they conduct themselves on the pitch. Um, so I do feel like those are all big factors in the change that we've seen in how Pakistan operates now as compared to, say, in the 90s, as we were talking about. So speaking of up and coming new players, let's talk about the performance of some of the so-called underdog teams. I think they did really well in this tournament. They gave us some really entertaining matches, some good performances. And of course, we can't forget hashtag justice for Pakbean. Zimbabwe beating us just to prove a point. And we admit it, we're sorry. We're so sorry for Pakbean. 
Um, and we're also sorry for anything else that might happen in the future. We can't guarantee he won't make a comeback. So maybe you guys can beat us again. What do you think, Hassan? Yeah, so I think the performance of the underdog nations was actually one of the major highlights of this tournament. Um, and I think we're getting to the point where we have to at least say so-called underdog nations um, because their performances in this tournament have really been against everyone's expectations. And there was a trend that started quite a while back. So if we rewind all the way back to the very first T20 World Cup in 2007, and Zimbabwe beat the mighty Australia in that particular tournament. And you've got to keep in mind that this was a Zimbabwe team that was in strife. They'd lost a lot of their main players due to various different controversial issues following the 2003 One Day World Cup. And Australia were invincible during this time. Like, they they just... Um, beat everyone before them um, during this particular time period. So that was a huge um, result. The next World Cup, the one which Pakistan won in the UK, the very first match of that game, the Netherlands had had beaten England, the hosts. So that was the, you know, beating England at Lords. And the trend just continues. I mean, I remember, I can't remember which World Cup it was. I think it was 2014, the one in Bangladesh anyway. And Hong Kong, of all teams, um, beat Bangladesh again in their home tournament. So these results have been happening for quite a while, but they've been sporadic. And you, you'll have like one result in a tournament or two, perhaps at most. But in 2022, what we saw again is five, at least five results, which you can classify as unexpected starting again from the first match of the tournament where Namibia uh, turned over Sri Lanka. Um, Ireland had a great tournament. They beat the West Indies and England. So, in fact, Ireland were the only team that beat the world champions. And Scotland beat the West Indies as well. Poor West Indies had a terrible tournament. (laughs) um, And then, obviously, there was the Pat Bean match that you've mentioned and perhaps the best match of all where Netherlands got us into the semifinals by beating South Africa. So my point being that it's gotten to be much more than just a sporadic result. And it's very good that the next T20 tournament is being expanded to um, to 20 teams, actually. This is the one that takes place in the West Indies and a few games in America as well. So we'll, we're going to have a much more football-style tournament where the format is, uh, I believe it's four groups of five teams each. And that gives um, a lot more chance to the so-called underdog nations who have, who have been a highlight for this World Cup, I believe. I think it's covered it perfectly, to be honest with you. Yeah, this World Cup um, had it all in terms of those so-called minnows actually, one, having somewhat of a chance in terms of qualifiers and then the Super 12 as well, and also showcasing their talents. Like Hassan, you said, Ireland had their you know, days in terms of beating the West Indies, beating England um, as well. Incidentally, that was primarily due to rain, just to like, you know, put, put that out there. But they still won. I still admit they still won. They still won. Um, but, I mean, obviously the Netherlands... Um, the honorary sixth province of Pakistan now of having beaten South Africa um, helped us to go through to the um, semi-final. So 
that's going to always be pretty awesome. And Zimbabwe doing their thing against Pakistan as well. So, yeah, it's always nice to see an underdog win, especially when the underdog wins against any team that's not your own. So hopefully that continues into the next T20 World Cup. Like you said, it's been expanded to 20 teams. So the ICC are finally doing something to actually give those middle teams much more of a chance to showcase their talent and do their thing on the major world stage. So hopefully that's going to be something that's going to be carried into future tournaments and not just one tournament um, going in 2024 before it goes back to, you know, a quick qualifying round before 10 or 12 teams get to do their thing in the main tournament itself. So Muslim, it's would you, um, sorry to, to butt in there, but would you say that when you say that hopefully this will carry on, that that responsibility falls on some of the established test nations as well to give more opportunities to these countries and actually play more with them, much more than they're actually playing against them right now. That's always going to be there for sure. And you've always seen some of the bigger teams shirting their responsibilities when it comes to playing some of the smaller nations. Um, I, look, Pakistan has always done its thing in terms of giving those smaller nations a chance to grow on the bigger stage. Pakistan obviously uh, was a huge proponent of Bangladesh getting test status and Bangladesh have come to Pakistan and vice versa in terms of lots of test tours and one day tours as well. Pakistan was the, I think the second team or the first team that toured Ireland after they got um, test status as well. So there are some teams doing their job and there are some teams, some of the bigger teams, perhaps not doing their job in that regard. Um, so there is a responsibility on the likes of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, England to an extent to, you know, and India to fulfill their responsibilities and actually play these smaller nations a lot more outside of major tournaments, but also in terms of making test cricket and one day cricket a lot more competitive on a much more longer term basis. I think we can all agree that this World Cup had some really really amazing points far more than what we've mentioned but there was some absolute crazy moments that happened during this world cup as well i think you guys know that i'm referring to some of the ridiculous umpiring decisions that were made um and it's not just that was one isolated bad decision and it was heartbreaking and just as a fan i know it's right but it was heartbreaking it's more how on earth did that even happen? Yeah, it was pretty messed up, to be honest with you. Um, and it affected so many games, unfortunately. Obviously, you were referring to that India-Pakistan game and the last over and that no ball that potentially wasn't a no ball and everything that happened alongside it. The main thing which absolutely surprises me is how easily umpires can seem to be influenced by players. Um, twice throughout the tournament, we saw Virat Kohli basically asking the umpire, why on earth is it not a wide or why is it not a no ball? And immediately after it was given as an extra, a wide or no ball. Um, that should never, ever be the case. Umpire should never, ever be influenced or pressured by players, regardless of whatever the decision is. So I think that left a very, very bad taste in the mouth, especially after that game. And then we saw also in terms of the rain situation. So for example, two games whereby you had um, attempts being made to come back onto the pitch a lot quicker than potentially it would have been done. So if some other 
different teams were being involved. So firstly, we saw in the South Africa Zimbabwe game, despite the fact that the outfield was absolutely shockingly wet, despite the fact it was still raining, they tried their absolute hardest to get back onto the pitch and questions potentially correctly and rightly were being asked. Would that have been the same situation if this was potentially a Zimbabwe, Namibia game, for example, two smaller sides um, with not much at stake in terms of that bigger test playing nation? Uh, would there have been attempts being made to get that you know, game restarted once again? Perhaps not, perhaps so, we just don't know. And then obviously the Bangladesh-India game as well. Um, I think the Bangladesh captain was literally remonstrating with the umpire not to come back on because it's far too wet. And we saw, I think, on the second ball of the restart, Litton Das was running and he slipped around the pitch again. So he could have injured himself. Um, and then obviously he was out pretty much soon after. Um, and then in the same game in itself, you had Virat Kohli doing his thing once again, fake fielding, pretending to throw when it wasn't a real throw. And the umpire had a perfect view of the incident itself, but for some reason still didn't give it as five penalty runs. And obviously Bangladesh ended up losing that game by five runs in itself. So I think the umpiring standards were absolutely shocking and it's absolutely amazing in this day and age when there's so much technology that's involved in the game. You've also got DRS. You've obviously got third umpires looking and and watching out for no balls themselves, that you can't have a video umpire seeing that someone's fake throwing and just relaying that back to the umpire saying, actually, you know what, this is the five penalty run that's within the ICC rulebook. Um, there's no consistency and it's just very, very frustrating because it seems like it's going to be something that goes on in the near future as well. Some teams are going to have the rub of the green, dependent on their status and the stature and how financially strong they are. And other teams are going to suffer as a result because they aren't as strong financially, because they're not as strong a test-playing nation and because they're not as big a cricketing nation as the um, other side. Hassan, do you want to come in here? Like Pakistan were feeling very aggrieved, obviously, with some of the decisions that they had to face, especially in their match against India. But Pakistan, like we did benefit as well from a bit of a dodgy decision against in Bangladesh in that must-win game after the Netherlands had given us uh, a potential route in to the semi-finals, and I think it was against Shakib Shakib Al Hassan, and it was a a bit of a dodgy LBW call, and that was made even it was a third umpire making it basically. So it it was you know it was using I'm not sure if it was referred, but it was definitely using the review system one way or the other. So we have benefited from that as well, and it just sort of feeds into that standard, that question of standards in umpiring and what can be done to improve those across the board. Hopefully the ICC will, um, the ICC umpiring panel will have a look at this. Um, and they have had a lot of negative feedback from across the board. Um, and, I, and I've sort of been following social media on this and I've seen various cricket journalists from you know Australia, from England, openly questioning the umpiring decisions and um, and, and, and the, the sort of way they were taken. So I think that negative feedback might have a good impact going forward. We'll, we'll have to see. But no matter what sport you're in, there's always complaints about the umpires and referees. So cricket's not alone in that. Cough, cough, F1. Hashtag Lewis was robbed. A year on and I still haven't given it up. F1 is another pretty boring sport, by the way, guys. I'm no, we're not, we're not going to have that pointless, conversation. Pointless and boring. No. Right, Merston, I'm, I'm definitely editing both of you out of context now. 
So staying in the same vein as the ICC and some of their questionable decisions, the scheduling was off completely. I don't know whether they were consulting Michael Fish or what happened, but how how is it possible that you can be so off and so many matches are affected by rain and the one that we needed to be affected by rain, nothing. I think there were there were actually two matches that we wanted to be affected by rain in the end. It's both both the India match and the England match. Um, we could have ended up sort of sharing the trophy if that had happened. But to be fair to the ICC, I think the forecasting wasn't their fault. There, there was um, an abnormal weather system across that part of Australia, um, particularly Melbourne, which nobody could have seen coming. And perhaps the conversation we need to be having is about climate change. But so that wasn't really the ICC's fault. But I feel where they did go wrong, as, as you mentioned yourself, was the scheduling um, of games. And I want to look at it from the angle of having two games in, in one venue, um, which which seems to be in fashion across ICC tournaments. I'm not, I haven't seen that in any other global tournaments um, where the TV setup is only limited to two stadiums at a time, which is what the ICC had done uh, during this tournament. You'd have like Hobart and Sydney together, for example, for a while, or you'd have Melbourne and Perth together for like, they, they only had their TV crews set up in Two, two or three stadiums at a time, and I'm not sure why they have those restrictions. But the impact that had, and I'll give a couple of quick examples here. Um, so I think it was October 26, so match day that took place on October 26, where Ireland did beat England in that rain-affected match, which Ireland were going to win anyway. But it did come down quite hard towards the end of that um, that match. So if that game had if the next game had been scheduled in sydney or in perth it would have gone ahead and that next game was afghanistan versus new zealand and it got washed out because it was at that same venue and the same thing happened then on 28th october where both afghanistan versus ireland and a huge game england versus australia were washed out because they were both taking place at the mcg so you know, worst case scenario, if they had those matches scheduled somewhere else, we might have lost only one or two of those games instead of the amount that we did end up losing. And these are big games. Australia versus England could have had a big impact on who made it through to the semifinals, particularly for Australia. So I think the ICC do need to have a look at their scheduling for, for tournaments going forward and hopefully abandon this policy of having two games on the same day at the same venue. I think that's a recurring ICC theme because even, not even ICC, I'm thinking about the ECB and the 100, they'd have double headers all the time. And I know that it was the men's game and the women's game, but they were in the same venue. So if one was rained off, and like you mentioned, the other one would also be rained off. So I think, yeah, it's definitely an ICC wide issue. And I'm not entirely sure why they insist on doing this or why they don't have any other contingency in place. I think the problem is when you are hosting somewhere as big as Australia or I guess even in countries where they don't have a lot of cricket stadiums or pitches available, 
it can be tricky to kind of have a contingency in place. So for example, let's just say in the context of the UK, we say, fine, we're going to have X versus Y in this stadium on this day. And if there's rain, we'll shift them to another stadium. The issue is, is that how are you going to get the players and everyone to go from stadium to stadium? If this was a potential solution, of course, you can do a single game on a single day, which I agree with you. The double headers can get really, really long as well. It's tiring. I think T20 is still a bit more forgiving, but if you do ODI double headers, it's just, God, how many hours are we thinking there? A lot of hours, but if you are if you are doing double headers, just do them in different cities. Sadly, we've nearly reached the end of the podcast, but Hassan and Mosin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on for my first episode. But it wouldn't quite be my podcast if I didn't throw in a little bit of a curveball. So we've got a quick fire round for you both. You'll both have two minutes to answer as many questions as you can. And the little twist I've added into here is that I've got two lists of questions. We're going to do a coin toss. And whoever wins the coin toss will either be able to pick list one or list two of the quick fire questions. Are you guys ready? All right. Let's do it. Who wants to call it? Um, yep, I'm happy to go with it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, tails. Tails never fails. Well, I was, I was going to say heads anyway, so that's fair. Right. Here's the result. Hassan. Are you going to choose list one or list two? Like, I have no idea what's in either of the lists. So it's, um, I'd just say two. Let's go for two. All right. So list it's number like two. One of those tosses, like in a game, you'd prefer to lose. I'd have preferred to lose that one. Anyway. Well, actually, that was one of the good points of the World Cup. The toss didn't really matter. So who knows? Who knows who's going to edge it? Let's see. Right, your two minutes. You said list two, right? I said list two, but I want to go second. <laughs> you, you can't. No, you can't choose your well, there order. There has to be some advantage <laughs> to winning the toss. Well, you got to choose. I know this is a bit of a lucky dip for you, but maybe it's to your advantage. And the questions aren't the same, by the way. So go on, Austin. Have have a bat first. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? Okay. Your all-time favourite cricketer? Gonna go with Sean Pollock. Unsurprisingly. The 2009 World Cup squad or the 22 World, World Cup squad, which Pakistan squad is better? 2022, for sure. The best cricket commentator? Ian Bishop. The worst cricket fans? I'm going to get hate for this, but I'm going to say India because although there's a lot of fans that I respect from India and I've got a lot of friends who are Indian cricket fans, but the toxic nature of some of the comments on Twitter coming from India can be quite hard to take. Okay, worst ever cricket kit? The Sri Lanka kit that they had during the 90s that they kept wearing for about 10 years. Again, great team, but that kit was awful. The best pacer of all time. Well, that's going to come back to Sean Pollock, isn't it? Is he, is he paying you for this? <laughs> it's, it's, I, I wish I was paying him for lessons, but no, he's not paying me for this. If ever anyone needed an endorsement of Sean Pollock, here it is. If you're listening, Sean. He's just a class act. Cool like Hassan. Pace building, life, he's just a class act. Okay, and that concludes your quick fire. Yeah, I survived that. You just about <laughs> survived it. And you've given a glowing endorsement 
to Sean Pollock if ever he needed one. Can we can we tag him in in these? I'll, I'll uh, tag him. <laughs> right, Mosin, are you ready? You'll also have two minutes on the clock, starting now. The best spinner of all time across all formats. Shane Warne. Your favourite cricketing moment ever. Oh, that's a good one. Um, 99 World Cup, Pakistan beating Australia, was seen getting the last wicket and just running right through, celebrating as everyone else ran onto the pitch. Nice. 99 World Cup squad or 92 World Cup squad? 99 World Cup squad, any day. The worst cricket commentator. Where do you start? Um, sorry, I'm so sorry, Bangladeshi fans. I love you, but Atar Ali Khan. Your favourite cricket stadium? Uh, the home of cricket, Lords. The most underrated batsman? Oh, that's a very good one. Underrated batsman, I would say at the moment, is going left field, Shadab Khan. Okay, and to you, the overall nice guy of cricket? Oh, Kane Williamson, again, I have to agree. Rate these cricketers in order from best to worst at their prime. Wasim Akram, Wagar Yunus, Shoeb Akhtar and Muhammad Amr. You've literally listed them perfectly. Wasim Akram is the best bowler of all time. Wakar Yunus is number two, Shoeb Akhtar number three. And the other guy that you've mentioned, number four. Your favourite cricket kit? 99 World Cup Pakistan, Nam Green. But also, um, a special mention for the 2011 World Cup Pakistan kit as well. Dark green, loved it. And your last question, the most controversial cricketer? Shoaib Akhtar. Does that count? Yeah. He was very controversial. And your time's up as well, Mosin. And with that, we draw to the close of our podcast as well. Mosin and Hassan, you've been amazing guests. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure being on your debut podcast. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks as well. And it's been great to be invited onto the first one. Hope it goes well. And um, that was a good experience. Thank you. And that's a wrap on our first episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed what we've had to say, head on over to Twitter at The Good Kush Pod, where you can get involved in the conversation and find links to the rest of our social media channels. But for now, have a good week and we'll join you again for another episode of The Armchair Analysts, only on The Good Kush Podcast. Like, share, and subscribe. And subscribe. The Good Kush Podcast, a little bit of everything.